Hey, this is Billy Claudio. I'm the pastor of Oasis Community Church, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you. I hope it builds your faith, and I hope you find freedom today through the gospel. Enjoy the message. Welcome, 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 welcome. If you're watching online, glad you're joining with us today. We are uh, in a special series called Asking for a Friend. We ask people to write down questions of things that they wanted to know about and maybe get understanding from Scripture about. And so we're in the second week of doing that. And today the topic is how should the church respond to racism and injustice? And also I'm going to answer how do I continue to love those who hate the Lord and continue to sin shamelessly or shamelessly continue to sin? How, how do we manage those things? So uh, I want to begin, you know, the topic of racism, obviously, over the last few years, and injustice has been, been forefront in our, our, our ears and our eyes. We've seen it. We've experienced all the uh, challenge that has gone on in society of racism, whether it be black and white or Latino or, or immigrants, whatever. We, we've seen all kinds of stuff that has gone on. And obviously the question of racism and how we manage it as individuals is an important conversation. But also the Bible has something to speak about this context and this conversation as well. And so we're going to dig into scriptures and find out how do we respond to racism and injustice around us. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn. If you have your phones, you can flip there. I'm going to put it on the screen as well. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, Joshua was leading the children of Israel to go to the promised land, and a part of their job was to go over, overtake the land that was possessed by other people. God said, I'm going to give you strength and power to go get this taken care of. And so Joshua had this army mindset, this moving forward mindset, and he had an encounter in Joshua chapter 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies. You know, that statement is, if you're not for me, then you are against me, right? It's the mindset in our humanity, the things that we deal with in a lot of the basis of how we look at life. If, if people aren't like us, if they don't look like us, if they don't talk like us, they're not in our same economic sense, they're not in the same uh, race division, we, we have a tendency to go, hey, if you're not for me, then you're against me. And there's a lot of people that struggle with the mindset of, of this in their own hearts, and like, hey, you have to be for me. And Joshua is standing before this angel and is asking this question, are you for me or are you against me? We see this in our society many times. It's kind of yes or no. Instead of it not being that way, our, our goal and our job we're going to find out is not to see things from our own perspective, from a he- but from a heavenly perspective. And we're going to learn, a part of that is learning to see somebody else's perspective, maybe on the other side. Uh, but we see in our society there's all of this, this venom that's going on, black versus white, Police or no police, uh, uh, immigration or against immigrants, the, all, all, all the things of poor and the rich, all the tension that's going on in our lives. And Joshua was basically saying, hey, are you for me or against me? In verse 14, this is what the angel replies, and really, it's Jesus himself that's standing. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have, come, I have now come. Basically saying, I'm not, it's not whether I'm on your side or on their side. I want you, you need to be on my side. You see, in Christ, there is no side. There's only one side, and that is his side. Many times we have this mode in our being about the taking of sides, and we think that our side is the most important. But I want you to know that the most important side that we take is 
is God's side, to see from God's perspective, God's viewpoint, God's vision of how we're supposed to manage ourselves in, in a tense society where people are trying to highlight negativity and divisiveness. What are we called to do as Christians? What is our response to the things that are going on around us? How are we going to change the tenure and change the culture with the way that we respond and the way that we act? Notice it says, then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? In other words, all right, what, uh, I, you're right. Uh, what is your way? What do you desire? How am I following after you? And today my prayer is, is that would be our heart. That we're not looking for a side, their side, my side. But we look for one side, which is what's God's side? What is God's perspective of how we're supposed to address this in our in our society, but more importantly than our society, how are we supposed to deal with this personally? What do I have to do in my life to allow myself to address this context in the way that it's supposed to be? The Lord went to say, commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua responded and did what the Lord wanted him to do. I want you to know that God has a vision of oneness and wholeness that he wants us to live in as believers. He wants us to be whole, but he wants us to be one. He wants us to have the mindset of Christ in our soul as we respond to the world that's around us. And again, I don't know if you know this, but the world has done a great job at creating all kinds of dissension, not only in the secular world, but in the, in the Christian world. This fight, political fights and, and racial fights. You know, on Sunday morning, it's the, one of the most divided times in America. Do you know why? You have people go to church, and they go to the church of their likeness. They, they find them Sunday morning. There are churches all across America, but in America, it really is a sign of kind of the brokenness of our society where everybody goes to their little clans and their little tribes and says, this is who we are and how we are, and the church ought to be better than that. It ought to be the place where oneness and unity and wholeness is seen in their better stead. We've got a long way to go in our culture to, to, to reach the place that God would probably have us be. But we live in a divided world. It's empowered by the God of this world, which is Satan. When he took charge, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, he began divisiveness right away between Adam and Eve, between Cain and Abel. The idea of, of division between humanity has been from the beginning of time. And, and just so you know, just a context of you know, race, if you know the story of creation, there was Adam and Eve, and everybody that's alive came forth from their their, their loins, right? Loin, you know what that loins mean, right? <laughs> they, they, they came from Adam. After the flood, everybody came after Noah, right? The idea of, of who we are, we all are descended from the same being. We're all, and though we might look differently, though we might have a, a different tone in our skin, I want you to know all of our blood, the Bible says in Acts, that we're all carrying the same blood on the inside of us, and the truth is, is that we're all one race. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't uh, accept and, and bless the way we are designed, the, the way that we look. It's a beautiful thing that God makes such beauty in the world that we're all so different and yet so beautiful. But God made us as one, and the enemy's desire is to cause division and strife within the church. The scriptures tell us as we come into Christ, we've got one faith, one baptism, one Lord. This idea of us becoming one is God's design, it's God's purpose, and God's plan. 
You know, we have this, in our society, we disregard the image of God in so many different ways, and it begins when, when, when babies are in, the, in mother's wombs. We begin to say, well, they're not yet the image of God. We have abortion in rampant mode to say they don't matter, and, and that mode of people not being the image of God transcends into the grow-up life as we have. We begin to devalue others and dehumanize others and say, well, they're not like me, and they're not as good as me, and I want you to know every one of us have been made in the image of God. We are image bearers, and God's desire and design is that we would all express the image of God in his beauty, in his power, and its, its awesomeness, in our own uniqueness, but never to disregard or to minimize others that maybe aren't just like us. L let me say this. Racism, racism is a sin problem at its core. Sin is in the world. Sin exposes us in our weaknesses in life. We were created as image bearers in God to share the goodness of God, but when racism and bigotry and injustice comes into our hearts, it exposes our sin and the destruction of this sin at a greater level. And God's asking, inviting everyone of us to say, what do we do with the racism that's going on and the bigotry that's going on, the injustices that are happening? And I know many people, even in me saying this, some of you are like... It's important for us to... The feelings that we have on the inside, if you're not feeling the peace of God as I speak the scriptures, if you're not feeling the atmosphere of God wanting to address something in our souls, because I remember uh, at times in my life where someone was talking, having this kind of conversation, I was uneasy and say, do we really need to talk about this? When the answer was always yes. And we need to address it not for somebody else, we need to address it within ourselves. Because God is wanting to make us all better. Aren't you glad that God hasn't quit making you better? Look at your neighbor and say, you need to be better. <laughs> wow, some of you, that was a lot very easy for you, I noticed. You parked right up. <laughs> Listen, this is not an American problem. It's a worldwide problem. Though we have our problems in America, we've seen it over the last couple of years of the tr struggle and the challenge that we've seen in, in our culture. But we can do something about it. And the first thing I'm reminded of, of 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that as Christians, there's something that we can do about the sin in our culture, the sin in our nation, the sin within our own soul. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Now, prayer is not just an invitation to God to do something. It's really an open door of, of communion with God that God can work within us at the same time we're asking God to do work on the outside of us. They would pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear the land. Now, I want you to notice this scripture is written to the Israelites, and God says they have wicked ways. Now, it's important to recognize that Israelites is a, is a type and shadow of who we would become and to understand the reality that it just might be that there are some wicked ways that are in us that have been left unaddressed. I know we all feel perfect and that I'm good and you're bad and that I don't have to work, but the truth is, is that every one of us, the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, is inviting us to take a look at the potential of things that are inside of us that need to be rearranged and reflected in our own soul so that we can reflect the glory of God in the way that he wants us to live. Because our prayer honestly isn't for others. Our prayer is for us and our wicked ways to say, expose me, Lord, show me what you want to do in my life. Because we're invited by God to see things from his perspective. 
Micah 6.8 gives us kind of a vision of God's plan of how we as Christians should live. He says, this has, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, humbly with your God. Simply said, He wants us to do the right thing for the right reason in humility and honor before God. Right? He wants us to do the right thing for the right reason. Now, we can all do the right thing when we're positioned to do the right thing, but God just doesn't want us to do the right thing. He wants us to do it for the right reason. I'm doing it with the right heart that's in play. The, the nature of why I'm doing what I'm doing has changed. I used to just do it because I had to do it. Now I do it because I, I want to do it. It's the work of God in our lives. You know, when God begins to transform us, it's a beautiful picture of transformation. You know, when, when I was in school, I had to read books to get rid, finished with, with school. How many of you remember those days? Right? I didn't do it because I wanted to do it. I, I, I did it because I, I needed to do it. But now I've, as I've matured, guess what? Now I love books. I love to read. I love to study. I heard one guy say this. He says, you know, when I was in college, I had to, I had to, to, to uh, listen to Mozart to, to get the grade that I needed to get. So I listened to Mozart, and I was forced to do it and demanded of me to do it and so I could pass my grade. He says, now today, I long to listen to Mozart. This is the work of God that he does in us. He transforms us into the have-tos, into the, I, I want to. I, I, I'm doing what is right, but it's because I'm, I'm doing it because I need to do what is right. It's in me to do what is right. And this is a work that God wants to do in every one of us. And I'm going to ask you the question. You know, as we, he says, to, he, we need to walk humbly before the Lord. We need to walk with open hands and an open heart. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, is it possible that we have some dysfunction in the way that we think, particularly as it relates to, relates to racism within our culture. Let me just state this as a simple fact. Everybody has bias. Everybody. It's just the nature of us. You know, we like to be around people that are like us, that talk like us, that walk like us. If it, we we want to be around people that are like us. It's convenient, it's comfortable, it's just the way that we are. If we have choices, when you show up somewhere, you have a natural bend of someone you're going to go, who am I going to stand by? You're going to pick between the two, not because you go, I don't care, you're going to go, I feel more comfortable standing over here. For whatever reason you had, you picked somebody, and it was a bias that led you to make that pick. Now, I'm not saying the biases are all negative. Surely they're not. But the reality is that every one of us intuitively and instinctively have biases. Some of them have been perpetuated by family members that we knew that passed on a bias or, or, as it were, a racism down to us. Some of us, through life experiences and judgments, someone said something, someone did something, uh, and, and, and through it, we're like, we made a judgment against someone and a bias came into play. How many of you ever heard, said this to yourself? Well, I will never let that happen again, right? I'll, you know, my wife, she made a judgment early. I'll never let a man tell me what to do. <laughs> and she's lived up to that, I promise you that. <laughs> I had a judgment when I was a young boy. My mom was, was a beautiful woman, a godly woman, but she was controlling. And I said, I'm never going to have a woman tell me what to do. So you got a woman that's not going to let a man tell her, tell her what to do, and a man that's coming together that's not going to let a woman tell him what to do. And we got together and we got married. <laughs> and now we don't do anything because we can't tell anybody what to do. <laughs> Everybody has a bias. Life happens. We get viewpoints. 
We have these tendencies in our lives because of how we're raised. This clan my mindset comes upon us and the people who are around, and whether it be political or economic or racial or nationality, even today the idea of sexual identity, people are being formed in our society to have these bents and these visions. You know, as a, as a pastor talking about sexuality in church today, there are so many young people that are offended that I would even bring up the conversation of, of God's picture of sexuality because they have this bent that's upon them, a bias of what should be and what they want it to be. And that this, it's just a tendency for all of us. And guess what? You are not excluded. I know that you think that you're not that way, but the truth is every one of us have biases that God is wanting to work on. And if we allow ourselves to come to the place of admission to say, God, show me my wicked ways where I've made decisions on the inside that you're not pleased with, that you're not happy with, because I want to... I'm going to live the way that you want me to live. Here's what happens when we have biases and we don't address them. Biases unaddressed lead to judgments. They become strong, hard points in the ground, something that's strong that says, you know, this is just the way that life is. It's how racism work, works in our culture, unaddressed. And, and people get a bent in a certain way. You know, I was raised in a, in a, a, a very non-judgmental or racial environment in my family. I was, grew up in a, in a very culturally rich community. People of all races were there uh, in Long Island, New York. And, and, and there was still some racism in high school at times. You know, things would split there up and people would get on sides. But generally, there wasn't a lot of racism going on. But I never heard it from my family. And, and one day, I was, I was visiting my father up in New York. And he was in the restaurant business. And for the first time ever, my dad said something, something had happened, and my dad used the N-word, and I had never heard him use the N-word. And I was like, oh, what just happened? My father never, my father never told me about prejudice, and my, my father never talked that way about black people ever. He never had ever, I'd never heard him ever say it, but something had happened that got him offended, and a bent inside of him said, yeah, this is the truth. And it hurt me in a sense in my own soul to go, what in the world just happened? A bias that went unaddressed became a, a judgment, and it, and it looped everybody in. It looped everybody into a, a, a category, and this is the problem with our biases. This is a problem with this racial um, injustice that goes on we lump people in you know when you're driving down the street and you see a, a latino person walking down the street and, and maybe they got a sign what do you think what is your judgment on them do you go they shouldn't be here because all of those people remember there's the thems and thoses right all of those people all of them they're they're the problem the vision of our heart, when we see, what do we think? Do we have a pure heart? Do we see with a vision of God's integrity and blessing? Or do we make a judgment by the simple sight of someone? And I would dare say that everybody in here can honestly address your soul and say, I might be guilty. Judgment. Based on bias. And again, whether through experience or through teaching or training or whatever. The Lord says, listen, I, I want to deal with the core of our beings so that the purity of the goodness of God and the blessing of God would flow out of our souls in the measure that the church should express it so that when someone would contact with you no matter what their history, no matter black, white, Latino, Asian, 
sexually messed up, they, they ought to be able to come to you and feel the grace and goodness of God flowing from your soul, not judgment to condemnation. And this is something that God is dealing with us all about. And it's a wide swath and reminded Jesus addresses bias in Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. How many of you love to be judged? Come on, amen. Give me an amen out there. <laughs> Hallelujah. Woo! Judge me, Jesus. You know, we're running from judgment because we don't want to be judged. We know our weaknesses. We know our failures. He says, judge not, lest ye be judged. For with the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plaque in your own eye? Plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here is a, just a fact. We all have planks in our lives. I know you think this scripture was written for somebody else. But it's time that we man up and confess up and, and get ready to say, yeah, I might have a plank in my eye that I don't want to admit. It's time for me to be honest in my soul to God. Help me, help me discover truths that you want me to see about my life. When we leave the plank in, something happens to our soul that creates all kinds of turmoil within our soul. Hebrews says this, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without the holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You know, when we have a judgment, the Bible says if we don't deal with the judgment, a bitter root takes place inside of our own souls. We're the ones that get angry. How many of you noticed that the more judgmental people are, the more angry they are? It just comes with it. It's the natural cause. If you are a judgmental person, your anger is based upon your judgment. If you want to get rid of your anger, you got to get rid of your judgment. And the only way that's going to happen is if you surrender humbly before God and say, God, I want you to take a scope, scope my life out. I want you to look closely at my life. I want you to begin to take out the, the, the things in me that this judgment nature, this criticism, these biases that make me always be the person on the high horse and the one that has the right to judge. Lord, let me not be that person. I want to be surrendered and submitted to the work of your grace and your spirit through me. Miles McPherson talked on this topic not too long ago, and he made this statement. He said, we've got to be willing to admit that we have blind spots. That's the plank. <laughs> How many of you ever hit something accidentally with your car? <laughs> There's a lot of laughter going on here. <laughs> someone, someone in the family's going, ah. It's amazing how much damage you can do to your car when you don't see something, right? And you know, we go through stupidity, we didn't look, we didn't whatever, but when, when you have a blind spot, you don't intend to do anything, you don't want anything to happen, but the blind spot only causes problems. And it can really cause problems if the blind spot happens to be when you're going fast and you're moving over and have, you can have a serious accident on a blind spot. And we don't want those in our lives. We, we have blind spots. We have to admit that we have blind spots and say, I need some help on figuring out what are the blind spots in my life that God is at work fixing me. You know, um, Peter was, was a, a, 
the apostle in the faith. He was used by God in a grand way in the first New Testament church. And he was a Jew's Jew, and he was leading the Jews. And, and the Lord spoke to him one day and says, I want you to go to the Gentiles. You know what he said? Not my people. The Gentiles aren't my people. Paul's taking care of the Gentiles. I'm a Jew with a Jew for the Jews. I'm Jew, 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 Jew. And God puts him into a dream and he, he shows him all kinds of unclean animals and things that the Jews weren't allowed to eat. And he said, now partake and eat. He says, I can't partake of that. I'm a Jew. That's unclean. And God said, don't call unclean what I call clean. Things are changing. Things are changing, Peter. Things are changing. The way things used to be, the way you used to see things has to change in your soul. It's time to get it right. Go see Cornelius, the Gentile, and I've told him you're coming. Go proclaim the gospel. He said, okay, Lord, what you say, I'll do. And he went, and Cornelius was saved, and all of his household were saved, and revival broke out because he said, God, what you say is clean is clean. I'm going to go to the Gentile. I don't know about you. I'm glad he came to the Gentiles. But he fell back. Here he was doing really good, honoring the Lord, went to the Gentiles, but he started hanging around with, with his clan. He started hanging around with the people that hadn't had the clean mind. They hadn't seen things as they should be. They, they hadn't lost their races, and they hadn't lost their paradigm of thinking of we're the good people and they're the bad people. We do it right, they do it wrong. We pick up in, in Galatians chapter 2. Paul communicating his, his, his engagement, his connection with Peter after he's already had this experience where God told him that this is what's true, Paul has to go and address him again. And in, in, in verse 8, for God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, who are the Jews, and was also at work with me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, Cephas who is Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Everybody's doing their thing. We're going. Everybody's good. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And when Cephas, again, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I want you to see this. Paul, who wasn't with Jesus, stood up to Peter, who was with Jesus, and said, you have a problem. And it was a racial problem. He said, you're looking at Gentiles, those that aren't a part of the Jewish culture, as somehow second class citizens and you're actually changing the way you you live when you're with the gentiles you don't mind living or being like the gentiles but when you get with the jews you push all the gentiles out this ought not to be so you are condemned you can read the story more of this passage in, in, as you go on he says i opposed him in verse number uh verse number 11 he said i opposed him to his face and then very down at the end in verse 14 he says when i saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel I said to Cephas in front of him, he basically had a, a, a come-to-Jesus meeting with him and said, this ought not to be so. You're exposed in your life. You're not living like you're supposed to. What does that mean, Bill? Well, for us, it means we need to take a stand when we see racism and injustice at work, in the house of God in particular. When we see it, when someone says something, when someone does something, we ought to, with the, with the, with the honor of the Lord, not to be judgmental, not to be condemning, to say, hey, that's not... That's not how we do that. 
This is not Jesus. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be loving and kind and generous to all people. This is the measure that God has called us to live, particularly to those in the house of faith. So, so how, do we, how do we get our blind spots exposed? You're, you're going to love this. <laughs> if you want your blind spots to be exposed, and it's not easy, you have to seek the guidance of someone that you have bias against. You have to have conversations with people that maybe you don't see eye to eye with to understand. And that's what we have to do, to seek to understand and have empathy toward them. Seek to understand and have an empathetic heart toward them to say, wow, okay, I need to understand. You know, Q and I, I love Q. Man of God, servant of God. He, he obviously, him and I are, 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 are brothers from different mothers. <laughs> right? His culture. He comes from an African-American culture. He comes from the, the culture that has experienced a lot of degradation within our society, society over the last 200 years. And yes, there's been free time. Yes, there's, things have changed to a great length. But there are still a lot of things that you can discover if you'll sit down and have open, honest conversations about the pains, the sufferings, the feeling of, of discrimination that they experience on a regular basis. And if you don't have that conversation, you'll never understand. And if you have the conversation with judging in mind, you'll never understand. But if you say, I just want to try to understand what you're experiencing and what you're feeling from your point of view. We didn't always see eye to eye or have seen eye to eye on his points and purview, but just to understand the points and purview made me go, wow, I understand it as such a grander scheme and dynamic of what you have experienced as a man. It's helped me in my own soul to say, yeah, Lord, all the more deal with the biases in my life. All the more make me better and a shining example of what the love of Christ means in our society. But we have to seek to understand and be empathetic. And one of the most important things that we have to do is we have to honor between us what's in common. <laughs> there are differences between all of us. Sometimes they're more exaggerated, sometimes they're larger, but the truth is, is that we all care, carry a common goal, a common purpose, a common vision, a, a common joy, a common suffering. And when we realize this together, we realize that, man, there's, there, there's so much more that we are alike than we are in any differences, and God is calling us, compelling us to walk hand in hand together as a society. And he's calling us to lead the way. So, I hope this addresses some of this conversation of how we're supposed to address racism in our lives. But I want to go to the justice side of it, too, because justice has multiple connotations, not just for in racial context. It's really justice in the reality of life. How many of you know we should be just people? It's the nature of God. Act justly, it says in Micah. That's a call that we're supposed to have. Uh, Tim Keller did a great sermon I heard recently about justice, and he made this statement. Justice is equal treatment for all. How many of you think that's fair? Right? As Christians, we're like, yeah, of course, e equal treatment for all. Justice requires us to advocate for the marginalized. In other words, justice demands that we don't do nothing. Let me say it again. Justice demands that we don't do anything. John, did I get it right? John, John goes over my notes every Sunday morning. He comes to me, I put the notes in, he's like, yeah, I changed one of those things for you. Bad English. <laughs> I fixed it for you. We're called 
to do something for the marginalized. It's our responsibility. The reason why we go to Mexico, the reason why we have a food pantry, the reason why we take care of people within our community, because they're marginalized. They don't have a voice of their own. Multiple times in the scripture it says, for Christians, be the voice of those that are left out. What does God call himself? I'm a father to the fatherless. I'm a husband to the widow. I'm a provider of the poor. I'm a helper of the immigrant, of the alien. This is the nature of God. Our Father says, this is who I am. This is my nature. And he compels us. Justice is to do something for the marginalized. It's to be a part of something, which for all of us, uh, I'll read this scripture too in Zechariah 8. says this, And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. He's saying, listen, if justice is doing the right thing, particularly with these individuals that are on the outskirts of society. And the third thing that he said that I thought was challenging for our society, share what you have to support them. In other words, God has blessed you in such a way that you ought to take some of what you have and take care of those that don't have. Now, I know in our Christendom, we teach the principle of that. We give our tithes so that we can be a blessing to the kingdom. We send money all around the globe. You hear the stories of the things that we do in practical ways. It's a wonderful thing. But God wants us as individuals to have the attitude and the, and the action that says, I'm willing to give of something of myself. It is justice to take care of those that are in need. You know, sometimes you take care of someone in need, you're like, I am such a good person. I am so, I'm, I am such a good person. You don't know what I have given of myself. And the truth is, you're taking a claim for something that's just justice. How many of you are thankful for your life? How many of you are blessed in your life? If you think you deserve it and you earn it because you're so special and you're so awesome... I want you to know that you were born here, you were given the brains here, that you were given opportunity here by a God that loved you. And aren't you glad that you were born in in the 2000s, all of us young people, all of us young people? (laughs) We were born in a season and a time that, man, the worst case scenario of our poverty is so wealthy compared to the rest of the world. We're blessed and justice is not to pat ourselves on the shoulder because we do kind. It's what we're supposed to do. It's just, it's the right thing to do because of the blessings of God. And I want to encourage you that God compels us to be just. Terry, this is better than that. Don't, don't leave. I'm, I'm closing right now. Closing number one. Don't sit up front and leave. That's what happens. That is what happens. I can't, I can't help it. So the question that I'm going to address earlier is the last question. How do I continue to love those who hate the Lord and shamelessly continue in sin? How how, how do we love those people um, that are in sin? Well, I'm going to, this is important, and you got to remember this. Sinners sin, right? That's the nature of them. For us to be angry at them doing what they do is doesn't make a lot of sense because sinners sin and some of them sin deeply and some of them don't love the Lord at all they hate God they hate you they hate the people that stand for you but they're still in the same condition they're not the problem 
They seem like the problem because of what they say and what they do, but the truth is they're not the problem. It is the God of this world that is the problem. Notice what it says in Matthew, uh, excuse me, in um, 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. I want to say this, they are not the problem. Satan is the problem, and he uses broken people and unredeemed people to cause suffering and breaking in the lives of other people. But we can't judge them and criticize them and be cruel to them. We are called to do something exactly the opposite of that. The question in itself has the answer in itself. How do I love somebody? That's really the deep, deep question. Well, first, we need to know that we are called to love the world. We're called to reach out and, and give of ourselves. God calls us to live by his creed of loving others. You notice we have. We want to love God, we want to love life, and we want to love people, no matter who they are. You know, my prayer is that anybody that would walk into this room, and in this day and age, I'm praying for particularly what's going on in our society. I'm praying for those that are asking a lot of sexual questions to show up. And they won't look like you. They won't talk like you. They won't answer the questions like you. They're going to be broken people that are seeking answers. How will you respond to them when they show up? What is your response going to be? Are you going to have the love of God and the grace of God and the arms of God that says, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that we pray that you meet God today and experience the love of God and the grace of God. Now, how many of you know when you got saved, you did become perfect? <laughs> right? How many of you know when we got saved, everything didn't change overnight, did it? We didn't become the shining beauty that we are today. Some of you are now, I'm still not the shining. Well, God's at work, amen, still, right? But we don't all of a sudden become this beauty of what God wants us to be. It starts somewhere with the redemptive work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that begins to change our psychology, that begins to change the way we think, the way we act, the way that we live. And we have got to, by the grace of God, have a love that is overwhelming and sustaining that says, I will not live in judgment. I will live in love and kindness and genuineness to lead people to that place of redemption and not judge, because many of you today... I can be included in that, quickly want to judge people. You see someone, I, I have someone, I go to a store and they've, they're transitioning. And you know, instead of going, what's wrong with this person? Straight. I pray for them every time I see them. And I'm, ex, I'm extra kind to them every time I talk to them. I'm going out of my way to say, uh, you know what, I, I want them to one day ask me the question of why I am the way that I am. But they are getting love for me because why? That's what they deserve by the grace of God. Jesus says in Matthew 27, 22, 37, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is our neighbor? <laughs> that was the question. He said, who is our neighbor? Jesus said, well, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. I don't have time to get into it. Let me throw some thoughts out. How many of you do have a neighbor that you have trouble with? I know some of you do. When you think of your neighbor, your, your, your neck twitches. All right, that's actually your neighbor. <laughs> you meet someone that doesn't look like you. Guess what? They're your neighbor. How do they make you feel? When you meet someone that has a different political view than you, and they air it, how do you feel? I know some of you how you feel. 
They're the enemy immediately. And they're not the enemy, right? They're not the enemy. But you feel that they're the enemy. It's a bias that you have. It's something that God wants to work on so that you don't feel that. And I'm not telling you to change your political view. I'm not saying that what you believe and think isn't right at all. I'm saying the way we measure against other humans, the enemy wants us to get in divisiveness and division and separation and judgment so we can't bring Jesus to him. We can't be the light that impacts a soul to be changed forever because we're so consumed about ourselves. Instead of saying, I'm going to act justly, show mercy. And I'm going to be humble before God. I, I want God to expose these areas of my life to bless and minister to people. When you meet someone with a different gender identity, how do you feel? When you see someone that's of the LGBTQWXYZ, I don't know them all now. They keep adding stuff to them. What, what, what do you feel? What do you do? Right? Well, how, what, what, what happens when you, when you experience that? Does your heart leap to say, what an opportunity I have to express Christ and to live and to bless and to do something kind and special? What is God's expectation for us? You know, Q made this statement and we were preparing sermon planning. He said, my allegiance to God's heart must supersede my personal preferences. My allegiance to God's heart must supersede my personal preferences. And those personal preferences are simply the biases that we hope to have changed one day, that we don't think that way, we don't feel that way. But God, and always remember, it's baby steps, right? You're not going to go from here with these biases to totally gone. It's going to be steps by step by step till one day maybe you find complete freedom and don't have those biases at work within your life. So what must we do? Well, Matthew 5 gives us the key. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. goes on to say in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? So let me say this as I move to close. Loving your enemy starts on the inside of your heart. We have to say, and again, I, I think this, the more we understand the love of God toward us, the easier it is to give the love of God through us. That he loves us, he forgives us, he doesn't judge us, he, he invites us in. in. In all of our brokenness, he says, come on, I'm going to heal you, I'm going to minister to you, I'm going to bring you life. He says, that's what he wants us to reflect. And the more we understand his love, the more we have the opportunity to pass that on to others. The second thing is, we have to be the first to forgive. When someone does something that's offensive, we've got to jump in and forgive. We've got to say, I'm going to live the measure of faith, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to judge, I'm going to actually do the exact opposite, I'm going to forgive others. Because if you're offended at somebody, you can't walk towards them in a loving manner. Like, I love my wife, but every once in a while. <laughs> like Friday. <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> I got upset. And it's hard for me to give her what she deserves from me when I'm upset her. Right? If I don't do what is right toward her by saying I have to forgive her, and again, whether, I'm right, whether she's right or wrong, it doesn't really matter. The key is not her. The key is, is me. i got to forgive her no matter what, because maybe I was in the wrong and I got judged her unrighteously. But either way, whether she was wrong or I was wrong, forgiveness does the same thing. It cleanses us so that I can walk in love. Right? It, it's the way that it works. And listen, when you hold on forgiveness, all you're doing is damning yourself and your ability to experience the love and blessing of God through your own life. Unforgiveness is a chain that restricts our own, our own lives. It messes us up, and I want to encourage you that, you know, Jesus uh, set us free. 
Paul says in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. At verse 13, you, verse five of, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk in the Spirit. God's purpose and plan for our lives. So love your enemies. Flip the script on them. Decide to be kind to those that you are calling an enemy today. Decide to do something nice for those that are, are, are making you not feel so nice. And most importantly, pray for them to find Jesus and don't give up on them. Maybe your neighbor only has one person that might be praying for them, and it might just be, might just be you. Maybe they came from a broken home or no home at all. Maybe they're angry, upset, and bitter at the world. And there's only one person maybe that can have an entryway into their life, and it's someone that will choose to not judge and be critical, but be kind and loving and do something out of the ordinary and not be earned. It's just something I'm going to give you, and I'll do it again and again and again and again. Not looking for something in return because that's not what love's looking for. It's saying, hey, I'm going to come to this place by the grace of God to love someone beyond measure and pray for them that maybe one day God will use me to be a redeeming grace in their life to lead them to Jesus. I close with this scripture in Romans 13. I give you a lot of scriptures. Why? Because we need the word of God alive in us. See, it's truth. It's, it's answer to our soul. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. God wants us to walk in this love because this love is so special. For God so loved the world, but he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the power of God that redeems broken people like me, like you. Maybe you're here today and you're far from the Lord. I want you to know that God loves you. Maybe you, like me, one day lifted your fist to God and said, I'm not interested. Maybe you pushed God out of your life. Maybe no one's ever expressed the beauty of God to your life. I want you to know there's nothing more beautiful, nothing more awesome than God's grace and God's love that will change your life forever. And today he's inviting you to experience his love through Jesus Christ. He loves you. I'm sorry for the Christians that haven't shown it. I'm sorry for me the times I haven't lived it. I want you to know that in spite of all of us, the God of the universe made you, created you, has a purpose for your life, but it only will be discovered if you accept Jesus as the Lord of your life and surrender your heart to him. Maybe you need to do that today. As I close, I'm going to close with a prayer of surrender to Jesus. Maybe you need to surrender your heart to Jesus today. Let him become the Lord of your life, the Savior of your life, the joy of your life, the purpose for living. Would you pray with me if that's you? Just open your mouth and say these words to God. The Bible says that we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. We'll be saved. It's kind of the turning of our old life into a new life, surrendering to him, and that's what this prayer is going to do. So take the words I say and make them your own. And let's do this together as a congregation. Say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for a sinner like me.
so that I could be saved, to receive your love and your forgiveness. And today I choose to follow you. I'm going to turn life, going life my own way, and I'm going to follow you. Fill me with your grace and your peace and your hope, and lead me in truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I really hope God moved in your heart today. And if you're in the Scottsdale area, I'd love for you to come and visit our campus on one of our Sunday services. You can find details to our service times on our website. I also want to thank our faithful givers. By giving towards our podcast, you're able to help us reach people from all over the world for Christ and fulfill the mission of Oasis, which is to love God, love life, and love people. God bless.